Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now it's time for our reading in the New Testament. And our narrative comes from the book of Luke, chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. We'll read through to chapter 8, verse 3. And here's a brief overview of what we'll be reading about today as Jesus encounters the woman who comes into where he is dining with Simon. Although the woman was not an invited guest, she entered the house anyway and knelt behind Jesus at his feet. See, in Jesus' day, it was customary to recline while eating. Dinner guests would lie on couches with their heads near the table, propping themselves up on one elbow and stretching their feet out behind them. Well, the woman could easily anoint Jesus' feet without approaching the table. Again, Luke contrasts the Pharisees with sinners. And again, the sinners come out ahead. Simon had committed several social errors in neglecting to wash Jesus' feet, a courtesy extended to guests because sandaled feet got very dirty. And he also neglected to anoint his head with oil and offer him the kiss of greeting. Did Simon perhaps feel that he was too good for Jesus? Was he trying to give Jesus a subtle put-down? Whatever the case, the contrast is vivid. The sinful woman lavished tears, expensive perfume, and kisses on her Savior. In this story, it is the grateful, immoral woman and not the religious leader whose sins were forgiven. The Pharisees believed that only God could forgive sins, so they wondered why this man Jesus was saying that the woman's sins were forgiven. They did not grasp the fact that Jesus was indeed God in person. Jesus lifted women up from degradation and servitude to the joy of fellowship and service. In Jewish culture, women were not supposed to learn from rabbis. By allowing these women to travel with him, Jesus was showing that all people are equal under God. And with that, let's begin our reading today here in the New Testament. March 27th, the New Testament, Luke chapter 7, verse 36, through chapter 8, verse 3. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon. He said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, five hundred pieces of silver to one and fifty pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, 
You didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head. But she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, Who is this man, that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his twelve disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Psalm 69, verses 1 through 18. As we read this psalm today, we'll learn some very important things. This is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, and it's often applied to the ministry and suffering of Jesus. Verse 4, like John 15, 25, speaks of Jesus' many enemies. The experience of being scorned by his brothers is expressed in John chapter 7, verse 5, and verse 9 portrays David's zeal for God. Christ showed great zeal when he threw the money changers out of the temple. David cried out until he was physically exhausted, with a parched throat and eyes swollen from weeping. Yet he still trusted God to save him. When devastated by death or tragedy, we need not collapse or despair, because we can turn to God and ask Him to save us and help us. The tears will still come, but we will not be crying in vain. What problems David faced! I mean, he was scoffed at, mocked, insulted, humiliated, and made the object of citywide gossip. But still he prayed. When we are completely beaten down, we are tempted to turn from God, give up, and quit trusting Him. When your situation becomes hopeless, determine that no matter how bad things become, you will continue to pray. God will hear your prayer, and He will rescue you. When others reject us, we need God most. So don't turn from your most faithful friend. Psalm 69, verses 1 through 18. With the choir director, a psalm of David. To be sung to the tune, Lilies. Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I am in deep water, and the floods overwhelm me. I am exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Those who hate me without cause, outnumber the hairs on my head. Many enemies try to destroy me with lies, demanding that I give back what I didn't steal. O oh God, 
You know how foolish I am. My sins cannot be hidden from you. Don't let those who trust in you be ashamed because of me, O sovereign Lord of heaven's armies. Don't let me cause them to be humiliated, O God of Israel, for I endure insults for your sake. Humiliation is written all over my face. Even my own brothers pretend they don't know me. They treat me like a stranger. Passion for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When I weep and fast, they scoff at me. When I dress in burlap to show sorrow, they make fun of me. I am the favorite topic of town gossip, and all the drunks sing about me. But I keep praying to you, Lord, hoping this time you will show me favor in your unfailing love, O God. Answer my prayer with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mud. Don't let me sink any deeper. Save me from those who hate me, and pull me from these deep waters. Don't let the floods overwhelm me, or the deep waters swallow me, or the pit of death devour me. Answer my prayers, O Lord, for your unfailing love is wonderful. Take care of me, for your mercy is so plentiful. Don't hide from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in deep trouble. Come and redeem me, free me from my enemies. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. To learn, you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesChanged.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio, and have a blessed day. Well, if you would, let's bow our heads together. I'm going to say a quick prayer, and we'll, uh, we'll do this. God, thanks for your grace. Thank you for these songs that we got to sing this evening and just proclaim your name, the name by which we're invited into fellowship with you, the name by which we, are, we have the opportunity to be saved, the name that we put our faith in. And I just thank you, God, that we get to celebrate with friends tonight what you've done, but also what you're doing, that we get to celebrate with three folks that are going to publicly proclaim faith in the gospel and in your name. God, we thank you, Jesus, that you love us, that you're good towards us, that we don't deserve it. And I just pray that we'd be faithful by looking to your scriptures and being encouraged, being challenged, and that my prayer, Lord, is that by your Holy Spirit, we would walk with a new assurance for those of us that are Christians, assurance of your your grace in our lives. For those of us that aren't, that we'd walk away putting our faith in you, maybe for the first time. And so we ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, well, let's get to work. Last week, in chapter 3, Peter and John, empowered by the Holy Spirit, notice the lame beggar sitting outside what the text says is a beautiful gate. Just this beautiful gate, right? Super excited. And they don't give him any money, but they pray for him. They pray for him, and even more so, they tell him to rise up and walk. Now, this is pretty bold. This is pretty bold. 
thing to tell someone who's been lame from birth. And by lame, the text isn't saying that the man wasn't cool or that he lacked social acumen. No, the man can't walk. The man can't walk. He's never been able to walk. Peter and John notice this man. Instead of noticing the 75-foot-tall gate, the beautiful gate that stood there, everybody else would have been looking up. But because of the Holy Spirit, for some reason, Peter and John are walking into the gate and they notice this man. They notice this beggar and they tell him to rise up and walk. And he does. And it's a miracle. And people start going crazy. I mean, I don't know about you, but can you imagine this scenario? Walking past this man as long as you can remember, and now he's leaping and jumping, and he's excited. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This would have been quite a sight. So the crowd was amazed. The crowd was bewildered. No one was quite sure what was going on. This wasn't a typical day. That doesn't last long before Peter tells them that it's by the resurrection of Jesus, the man that they killed, that this man now is healed, that this man now walks, that this man now jumps for joy. And so Peter begins to talk about the kingdom of God, which would have been a little weird for the folks that were listening because they they knew about a kingdom, but they knew about the Roman kingdom, the kingdom that was right in front of them. And so so Peter starts talking about a completely different kingdom. And we know from last week that in Acts 3, 19-21, Peter says, Repent, therefore turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. So what we know is this isn't a warm, fuzzy sermon. No, sir, Peter is calling the people, he's calling the crowd to action. Peter's speaking with authority. And and you might imagine this gathers the attention and not everybody's happy. Not everybody's really excited about what's being said. And so as Aaron just read, we see uh, in the first four verses, it says, and as they were speaking to the people, The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So the religious leaders show up, all right? That's what's happening. The religious leaders show up and they're not happy. They're not happy at all. The Sadducees in particular, these folks, they didn't believe that Jesus resurrected. They didn't believe in the majority of the Old Testament. And they'd compromised their religious faith in turn for political and economic standing with the Romans. So they're mad. They're mad. They throw Peter and John in jail. And, and, the, and the question we have to ask ourselves is why they're mad? Why are they annoyed? What, what is offending them? They're mad because of Peter's words. They're mad because of Peter's words, because of the proclamation of his words. See, last week, we highlighted this pattern that we see in the early church, in the New Testament. And this pattern was that they would proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. They would proclaim the gospel in what they say and in what they do. And the thing to notice here, and what we might even be able to relate to in our own life or see in our culture 
around us currently is that oftentimes our good deeds will be less offensive than our words most of the time. So do you see this happening in the text? Do you see this happening in the world around us? Because chapter 4 opens up, and as they were speaking to the people, that's how, the chapter, that's how chapter 4 opens up. Their words offended. Not necessarily the act itself. Their words offended. So why were they so annoyed? Well, the text tells us. It says, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were proclaiming Christ and it offended the religious leaders. So there's a miracle. Everybody's going nuts. Everybody's going crazy, excited. They start preaching Jesus and they get thrown in jail. And here we see the first instance. This is the first instance of persecution that the early church faced. Right? Because that's what we've, we've finished up with the Gospels. Jesus has, has, has outlived it. He's lived his earthly ministry. He's been crucified. He's been buried. He's resurrected. He's ascended. Now the early church is inaugurated. This is the first instance of persecution that we see. And listen to this. Catch this. Despite that, the church grows. We see in Acts 1.15, and I don't know if you noticed this, but in Acts 1.15 there was about 120 Christians. By Acts 2.41 there, were, there are 3,000 Christians. And here in Acts 4.4 the number of men it says came to be about 5,000. And that's only the men. So, so this means there could be upwards of 10,000 plus Christians. So here we see persecution, but despite that persecution, the church grows. The gospel's constantly met with persecution, but despite that, the gospel's fruitful, and the message of Jesus Christ expands. It's crazy. And what we know, if you look through history, is that Christianity has always been offensive. Christianity has always been offensive. A couple centuries ago, it was believed that because of the advancements in technology and culture, that it would ultimately lead to a secular society that religion would become obsolete. And what's happened? What's happened? Well, if anything, people are not more secular as much as they're more spiritual. They're more spiritual. Recently, the terrorist group ISIS murdered 21 Egyptian Christians. 21 Egyptian Christians. And and why? Because they called these 21 Christians, they called them people of the cross. People of the cross. They were killed because they were people of the cross. See, the message of Jesus either saves or it offends. And we need to get that. As I've quoted before, one of my favorite thinkers, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this in Mere Christianity. This should be on the screen. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, referring to Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I love those words by Lewis. See, Peter and John are arrested because they're proclaiming Christ. Hear their message. Hey, you guys, you killed Jesus. And he was better than Abraham, your lineage, your heritage. Jesus is better than Abraham and Moses. He's the prophesied Messiah, and you killed him. You killed him. So again, this is the first documented case that we have of persecution against the early church. And yet, the church grows. And the church has existed since, and has grown since, and has gone to the ends of the earth. Hence, how we are here in Columbus, Ohio, 2,000 years later, and we're proclaiming the same gospel. The same gospel. Despite persecution, despite the church making horrible mistakes, despite sin, despite death and heresy, the gospel advances and goes forward. Praise God. Verse 5 says, On the next day the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all... And all were of the high priestly family, and when they'd set them in in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And so all, all these people mentioned are in places of religious authority. It says it right there in the text. And, and that's the context of their first question, religious authority. They're basically saying, we're in authority here, we're in charge. People come to us to know the law, to understand the commandments, for religious guidance. By whose authority are you here? We obviously didn't sanction this. Caiaphas, was this you? No. Annas, John, Alexander, no. Well, then who gave you the right to speak? Who gave you the right to speak with this authority? They're trying to intimidate Peter and John. They set them in their midst, which means they surrounded them. They were attempting to overwhelm them. Can you imagine their cynical, mocking tone? Who do you think you are speaking such things? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by by which we must be saved. Hear that again. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the cornerstone where the whole foundation's built. There's, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men which, were, which we must be saved. Peter and John seem really intimidated, don't they? But it's interesting because we see a different Peter 
in Luke 22. See, Dr. Luke wrote Luke, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And Luke doesn't show bias. Because in Luke 22, what do we see? We see Peter denying Jesus three times. When he's questioned about what? Aren't you a disciple of Jesus? No, man, no. That's not me. I don't know. You must be thinking of somebody else because that's not me. And he denies knowing Christ. He denies being a disciple three times in Luke 22. And now he's calling out the whole religious party. What happened? What changed? Peter saw the risen Christ. Peter saw the risen... There's no other explanation because no man would die for a made-up story Especially when they see him, whenever we see Peter deny Jesus before he was crucified on the cross. Not only that, but again, the pattern we see in Acts is we know that now Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter witnessed the ascension. And I pray that we would have this kind of faith, this transformation that we go from denying to speaking boldly. He's empowered, he's emboldened, he witnessed Jesus' resurrection, and no one can shut him up. He says, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter here is not trying to win a popularity contest. He's not intimidated. And one thing, and really the big overarching theme of, our, of this text and what we're, we're trying to drive home here is here we see the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way to be saved. The only way to have a relationship with God. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is our propitiation. He took God's wrath for the penalty of our sin, and so on and so forth. And this is difficult in our individualistic culture. Very difficult. Because these are exclusive claims in a culture that proclaims itself as being inclusive. We live in a culture that says, Why, isn't, why can't everyone be right? Why can't all of us just get along? Why does religion have to be so divisive? And so Keller, in The Reason for God, he talks about how many have advocated to outlaw religion, to condemn religion, or to privatize religion. And none of these have worked. None of these have worked. But what many folks fail to realize is that as Keller says, and you can read along on the screen, he says, everybody has exclusive beliefs. Therefore, the real question is which set of exclusive beliefs produces the most peace-loving, reconciling, inclusive behavior? That's what you want to know. And he goes on. Everybody's taken on spiritual reality, which is based on a set of religious assumptions. Based on faith, everybody thinks their take on spiritual reality is better, and other people should adopt it, and the world would be a better place. Therefore, everybody has a set of exclusive beliefs. Therefore, what really is the matter is not who has exclusive beliefs. No, which set of exclusive beliefs can produce loving, inclusive, reconciling, peaceful behavior. See, don't say, oh, Christians, you have exclusive beliefs, but I don't. You don't know yourself. You may not think you do, but you do. Take moralistic religion into the center of your life and you'll feel superior to the secular, secularists. Take secularism into the center of your life and you'll feel superior to all those stupid religious people. 
Take the gospel into the center of your life and you'll be humbled before people who don't believe what you believe. You'll seek to serve the people who don't believe what you believe. Don't you want this incredible force to be released into the world? I hope you do. Here's how you do it. If you believe the gospel, believe it more deeply than you ever have before. If you don't believe the gospel, consider believing it and become a part of what the world needs. See, the gospel understood correctly and lived out produces a radical love, a radical service, a radical holiness that we don't see in ourselves, that we don't see elsewhere. If that's not you, if that's not me, if if we don't see that in us, then what that means is that we're not fully living out the gospel in our lives. But the heart of Christ, the character of Christ, the way of Christ, friends, is the way to human flourishing. It is. It's the way to human flourishing. As John 14, 6 reads, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to me, comes to the Father except through me. So we all have to realize, even though this text is pointing to the exclusivity of Christ, we all have exclusive views. So the question becomes, which one brings life, as Keller said? Which one, when it's properly understood and lived out, produces true joy and true love and peace and hope? Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, They were astonished, and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So the religious leaders we see here, they're taken back. Peter speaks with authority. Peter's speaking with boldness. And I love this line, perceived that they were uneducated common men. They're just taken back by that. These guys don't have PhDs. They didn't walk in the footsteps of a rabbi except for Christ, but he wasn't considered by many to be one. And the next line, and I love the next line, and I, I hope that people say that about us. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. That they'd been with Jesus. I love that line. These men, we haven't heard people speak with this authority since, since, we've, since we've heard Jesus. They sure do sound like Him. They speak in a similar tone. They speak in a similar authority as Him. And verse 14 is important. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Well, there's the lame beggar. There's, you know, there's lame Jack. He's obviously walking. He's obviously walking. This is definitely a little different. We haven't seen this in a while. And so they're speechless. They're speechless. They don't have anything to say. And hear me, the miracle wasn't an end in itself. They weren't just doing miracles to do miracles. The miracle pointed to the work of Christ. It pointed to the lordship of Christ, to the deity of Jesus. The point of the miracle was to bring worship to Jesus Christ. Remember, Peter and John um, and, and previously were like, you think we did this? We didn't do this. We didn't do this. Through the resurrected Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, this miracle took place. Period. Repent and put your faith in Jesus. Be baptized. They didn't start a seminar on the seven steps to healing lame people. They didn't do that. They said, repent, be baptized, and put your faith in Jesus. The miracle pointed to worship to the worship of Christ. 
And then we'll finish the last part of our text. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And when they hadn't further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. There's so much I want to say here, but, but we'll say this. The religious leaders were led by their flesh and not by the Spirit. They were more concerned about pleasing the people and the masses than, they were, than, than there was a sense of fear towards God. They had no fear of God. They had no fear of God. True, true spiritual leaders, if these men would have been true spiritual leaders, they would have said, yeah, we did kill Jesus and maybe he, wasn't, maybe he was the Messiah. Maybe we should take note of what these men are saying. Maybe we should investigate this. But they don't consider what they're saying. They condemn them instead. What shall we do with these men? A notable sign has happened. I'm not quite sure what to do about this. We need to get them to shut up. And they tell Peter and John not to talk about Jesus anymore. It's just crazy. And Peter goes to town on them. They actually, they actually ask them, so we've been talking amongst ourselves? Yeah, can you not talk about him anymore? Can you not talk about Jesus anymore? We know you think he's God and that he healed this guy, but can you just keep this whole thing to yourselves? And their response, friends, is prescriptive for what our response should always be. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And this goes back to the exclusivity thing. People want to make religion a private thing that people do. Like, you can be religious, but keep that out of the public square. Keep that to yourself. The problem is that in and of itself propagates a certain understanding of what religion is. This would only work if religion was simply a ritualistic thing that we did, just to make ourselves feel better. But if you're truly a follower of something, it changes the way you see everything. To ask people to keep their religious views out of the public square is an extremely exclusive thing to ask. Because deep down, true religion is attempting to answer the deepest questions of human existence. Why do we exist? What is our purpose? Why am I here? And to ask someone, hey, keep that to yourself. Don't bring that here. Well, think about it. That's extremely exclusive, close-minded, and intolerant. But people do this all the time. And they do it in the name of tolerance and love and justice, even though it's entirely unjust. And listen, Peter and John aren't giving us license to disobey the governing authorities here unless the authorities demand that we disobey or dishonor our highest authority, God. 
See, we've got to think back to the Reformation. The, the Reformers, they declared something. They, they declared this sola scriptura, which means that Scripture is our highest authority. We obey earthly authority as commanded in Scripture, but our ultimate allegiance is to God. And the religious leaders here, they're asking them to disobey Jesus. What did Jesus command us to do? Jesus commanded us, Acts 1-8, to be witnesses of Him. And the religious leaders are asking Peter and John to be silent. Their response, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. We cannot but speak. So the religious leaders threaten them further. And I don't want to make, let's not make this cute. They threaten them further and this would have been uncomfortable. This, there's, this is evidence that in a sin-filled world, we will get opposed and sometimes persecuted. Why am I persecuted, God? Where are you? Why am I hurting? Why do I feel far off? Why do I feel alone? But guess what happens while Peter and John are being threatened and persecuted? The text says, all were praising God for what had happened. All were praising God. They were thrown in jail. All were pra- The church was growing. All were praising God for what had happened. God had a purpose. The church is growing. The gospel is going forth. Jesus is alive. Praise be to God. We see Jesus at work in the midst of persecution. We see Jesus at work in the midst of our toil, our unrest, the mocking. We see Jesus at work in the midst of difficulty. Our responsibility is to be faithful. We are called to be witnesses of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you love us. You are the only way. You are the only way. And I pray that we would not be ashamed to say that boldly, but with humility, with grace towards others. That we would never forget how merciful you've been to us. We did not deserve your love. We do not deserve your love. Every one of us in this room are sinners. But by grace, you saved some of us. That does it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening and make sure to tune in tomorrow for the next edition of Transformation Radio.